Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. On this episode of the Greener Way, we're speaking with Forever Wild CEO Fee Krakarni. Forever Wild is an innovative Queensland social enterprise seeking to protect Queensland wilderness in conjunction with the land's traditional owners, supported by a blend of philanthropy and private investment. Fikro, welcome to The Greener Way. We know there's this fierce urgency to protect fragile Australian ecosystems. So can you please introduce us to the work streams of Forever Wild and how you came to found this organization? Thanks, Rachel. Great to be here. Yeah, okay. So Forever Wild is best described as a group. Um, we are, uh, I think, a kind of a new generation of, of initiatives. Um, the, the founding of Forever Wild started many, many years ago when I was a scientist with the CSIRO and involved in landscapes across Australia and sub-Saharan Africa and looking at the connection or in many cases disconnection between economics and people and landscapes. So, you know, the triple bottom line idea and how we can invest in the kind of nature positive has been around for quite a long time, but without mechanisms to really achieve that. So Forever Wild was launched in 2018. Uh, we launched in Queensland, but we actually have a focus across Australia. Our largest program is in Western Australia at the moment, and we also are developing programs overseas. Um, but yeah, Queensland-based company. We so when I say Forever Wild Group, we structure it in a sort of unusual way. We have a, a charitable entity at its core, and from there we have uh, like a spokes design of for-profit initiatives that we set up. Um, the purpose being to create, you know, large-scale community nature-based solutions for, for climate and biodiversity, but ones that really drive or enable, you know, private capital to be, to be put into these kind of really large-scale problems. We need to think large-scale at, at a finance end as well. We had a lot of help along the way. We had, you know, three years of putting this initiative together. We had help from... Um, EY sustainability team and PwC with financial modeling. We had a lot of a lot of input to try and solve these problems. And, and probably the bulk of our work was upstream. How do we work with the finance and investment sector on, on structures that realistically provide for what investors want, but are nature positive? And it's been quite a challenge because there's actually not, we don't, we haven't really constructed the pathways. A lot of the intent is there, but generally speaking, the pathways aren't. So, um, so along the way, we we constructed a, a an impact framework based on a set of landscape design principles. The fundamental principle, I guess, what we work around is to build social and ecological equity into all decisions. So, all economic and business decisions, investment decisions, must have social and ecological equity at their core. So, we built an impact framework that does that and that ties into the larger global frameworks around the UN SDGs, um, some of the biodiversity frameworks to make, make it meaningful on the ground. So that's, that's us in a nutshell. Can I actually ask you to drill in a little bit more? Because I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more on a practical sense what it means to build in economic and ecological equity. Uh, these are three very big words all put together. So could you break this down a little bit for me and explain what that means in a practical sense? Yeah. Okay. So the I'm sure you know we've all heard of the triple bottom line. It's been around for a long time. In reality, what tended to happen for many years and still happens today is that the the economic imperative tends to override 
the needs of nature and community. So when we talk about social equity and, and people in these landscapes, we're sort of talking about everything that makes us up as people that's not to do with the dollar. So our well-being, our mm. spiritual connection, our language, um, the diversity of of industry and you know shared histories, if you like, in these landscapes. So we, you know, to build a framework that that could genuinely interact with these things in a positive way was quite difficult. And we, we needed a team to do that. So we, we brought in teams from, from the EY group and they, it's an amazing group of people. And um, well, we had mm. long, long discussions in, in rooms in uh, Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney to figure out exactly how we base an economic decision that has this equity. And, and we built a framework. So we, we have three programs. We have what we call the human spirit, which is about everything to do with people except with money. Mm-hmm. We have um, mm-hmm. wildlife and evolution coined in that way because it looks long-term. We, we want to protect landscapes in the long-term for the evolutionary potential. And then we have the economics program, which is really around sustainable enterprise business and ways to support investors with their financial return on investment. Now, when we look at outcomes, we often see interactions between if we do business well, if we build industry well. For example, it, let's just take um, production of food in a landscape. It doesn't have to be ecologically destructive. It can be done mm. in a way that really maps out the key ecological aspects of the landscape, how the landscape works, its species, suite of species, and where we're best placed to develop that for food production without destroying it and how we can do that. We have a lot of science behind this, but the implementation mm. of the science often gets overridden by the financial you know, drive to pay back debt, uh, changing interest rates, and all these kind of things. So even the best intentions can be for nature can be overridden. So we set out to, so a lot of our innovation, I suppose, is around how we do business in a much more sensitive way by changing mm-hmm. the economic relationship with the land um, mm-hmm. in a way to protect, in a way to protect it. But when we look at social equity, we need, people need livelihoods, right? So people living in these places, it's not about, it's not, for us, we have, I, People get probably tired of hearing it, but we have one planet. Right? I say it all the time, we have one planet. We've got to figure this out. Just got one. And if we mm-hmm. can't figure out it places to live with nature where people can have you know, meaningful livelihoods, high standard of living without destroying nature, then we're on a bit of a hiding to nowhere. So that, that's, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that, that's what we mean by building in social ecological equity. And it was a framework to do that. So when we co-design this with people on the ground and we bring mm-hmm. science in as part of the nature co-design, we always have to come back to the set of principles. You know, if we look at a potential negative influence from an economic decision, we then mm-hmm. have to go and figure out a better way to do it. That's fantastic. And I appreciate you breaking it down because again, these are huge, big, important concepts and and seeing how it plays out or hearing from you how it plays out in terms of actual projects is really, is really vital. So thanks for that, Fikra. Speaking of working with people, you know, in communities, um, you know, you spruik the fact that you work in conjunction with traditional owners of the land. Um, can you explain about how you develop authentic relationships with the traditional owners? Um, again, I assume around this empowerment of people and equity of people pr- uh, framework that you've embedded. Yeah, that's right. So we, when we first look at a landscape, you know, we sort of map the ecological values and we map the social values. It's kind of an internal process and we start talking. So 
when we first came to look at our major property in Queensland, um, same in Western Australia, we spent about two years in the landscape first talking to lots of different groups um, mm. and the community as a whole, you know, so lots of great diversity of people living in these landscapes. And that includes traditional owners, of course, in many places. The key thing for us is to understand what the needs of a community are as articulated by them. So we're mm. quite non-prescriptive, right? There's, there's a number, if we have an objective uh, to protect nature and to support people, there's actually multiple pathways often that that, that can be achieved. So we, mm. we, we try to keep an open mind and l- look at kind of design different businesses that that relate to those people's needs or desires or wants and are viable in that landscape. So we have a bit of an economic design process as well. You know, there's obviously some limitations to what we can do. We work with investors upstream, some limitations as to what they can, they can finance. But we have a, an interesting working example. In North Queensland, the traditional owners are the Malarigi people. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's a, a body corporate, um, but there's, there's a lot of people involved in that. One of the challenges is that the structures I think that have been developed, particularly for traditional owners, are not necessarily conducive to, not really conducive to business and investment. So it, it can be quite a challenge. So what we did is we worked with them over a couple of years. We, we worked through that. We learned this as we went. You know, we looked at lots of different options. We were looking at setting up uh, an eco lodge, a wildlife-based ecotourism in North Queensland on one of our properties. And we wanted to do it with the local indigenous community. Now, we had people in that community come to us and say, well, the other thing is that a lot of the community here is quite mixed. So it's not just traditional owners. There's a lot of people here. There's a lot of children without opportunity. How do we think about this? This was another aspect we hadn't considered. We ended up helping them to develop and launch a company. So it's a mm-hmm. wholly indigenous-owned company in town. I, th- I think it's the first one of its type in, in this area. And they work with us. We set up a subsidiary company that could bring in investment. So the initial step was, well, if we help set up a company, you can bring in investment and we can help you, guide you to help to run this lodge and to manage it. You can develop your cultural tours. Um, We do events and functions out there. So they wanted to offer different ceremonies to people getting married. It was was really an exciting time. Mm. And you, you just, it's hard to, it's hard to express the level of, the number of roadblocks that come up. So just as an example, one of the directors doesn't have a birth certificate, you know, and this is actually quite common in mm-hmm. in rural Australia and remote parts mm-hmm. of Australia, a lot of the Indigenous people. So she couldn't get her director's ID to be a director of the company that she'd been involved in innovating with. So that was, you know, like a year-long process just for her to try and get past that and to work it through. It's really, it's quite extraordinary, you know. Uh, but we, mm. we got to the point and they now have a company, they call it Anabubu, which means place of water. They realized that for them to start generating investment, they really didn't have any business experience. So it's, people aren't going to give money. So we, our subsidiary company that we set up then brought in the money to set the lodge up and they work along beside us to build their capacity and how to run a business. Um, you know, we brought in uh, that they we collectively we collectively brought in a business advisor, got some money from Canberra that helped them to plan out their business. So that's where we're at now, and it's been you know it's been about three years to get to that stage. That's okay. I mean, that's that's great. We end up with a great result, 
but that's you know that's an example of of how we work. So it's really about trying to build longevity into in, into this, and it's a social enterprise effectively. I'd like to turn the conversation just slightly, Fikra, because you know, obviously, you know, it sounds like you know it's been a twenty year twenty year journey to be an overnight success from the perspective of you know you're you're now hitting straps as the issue of biodiversity and nature based solutions is coming to prominence within the investor and, and business community. Um, how do you scale? some of the work that you're doing within um, within Forever Wild to assist with meeting the moment where there's a recognition that there's an economic as well as environmental value to Australian wilderness and find solutions that sort of fall into traditional finance uh, structures? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> and that has really been the bulk of our work. And it's mm-hmm. often behind closed doors, sitting in front of laptops, you know, people, most people haven't heard of us. We don't have a great public presence. Our goal has been to drive private capital into these, into these landscapes. We particularly focus on large wilderness landscapes for a couple of reasons, for a few reasons, actually. So I think it's worth articulating that. One of the primary reasons is that these landscapes hold really, really important biodiversity values. If we can't protect that, then our species loss will be catastrophic. They also are massive carbon stores. So we look at the belts of intact ecological systems across the world. There are about five main areas. Australia is one big areas in sub-Saharan Africa, um, South America. So those are the landscapes of our focus. And we have to protect what remains, which is only about 20% from the pre-industrial era. And if we can't do that, then a lot of our climate actions are largely worthless. We, we have to be able to do this. So there's another reason, which is partly driven by my personal motivation, but I think also will be important in generations to come. These places really harbor a lot of diversity, incredible diversity, human diversity. So languages, traditional knowledge, um, cultures span back thousands and thousands of years. You know, it's, it's like our our shared history is sort of etched into these landscapes, and and I just I just find that a, a such an important thing to try and protect. Going back to your question, how do we bring large scale finance to this? Um, I started out with this thought that you know when you travel to almost any given major city in the world, you can stand inside a building that cost a billion dollars. And we regularly talk about billion-dollar buildings. There's a couple going up in Melbourne, but we very rarely talk about billion-dollar landscapes. But surely mm. there's got to be a way. If investors can invest a billion dollars into a building, there's mm-hmm. got to be a way for us to do that into nature in a non-detrimental mm-hmm. way. And that was where that was where we started working with different investment groups. Um, last year, 2022, we've done a lot of work with the Commonwealth Bank of Australia and created one of Australia's, in fact, Australia's first financial mechanism of its type for a, for our Western Australia project. It's complex. And one of the challenges is that the mechanisms don't exist. What we can do, however, because we've done a lot of work at the framework and, and how we can manage nature, we, you know, we build special purpose vehicles for investors. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we've mm-hmm. got those structures. And one of the, one of the challenges, I guess, is uh, really has been to make sure investors get return on investment. So we've always posited that if we do things really well, consumer demand will will pay for some of that return. 
they'll pay for produce which is measurably linked to reliable biodiversity metrics and reliable metrics for protecting nature and uncommunity aspects. Um, so we've done a lo- lot of work with that, and uh, and we're currently working with the industry in Western Australia on a, you know, a very large scale, a thousand square kilometres, to see if we can bring this, you know, um, I guess really nature-based produce to market. Mm-hmm. So that's got investment interest. Uh, the you know the acquisition of land, converting it into really sustainable use, bringing in community traditional owners, bringing in that knowledge. It's honestly, it's probably almost another another topic because we have a whole business area. We have a whole business area that's been dedicated to creating a transparent mechanism for investors and for community to track both the investment in and the produce out. Oh, we're definitely going to have to return for another for another conversation yeah, on this. Trying, <laughs> I'm trying to fit the answer without going into being, being too long. But I guess I guess the, the you know the the, the nuts and bolts of it are that we, we create special purpose vehicles. Um, investors can okay. put nature positive investment in there. We, you know, mm-hmm. we're working with, working with the, the Queensland government actually, because they, interestingly enough, uh, Rachel, they were contacted by an overseas group that wanted to invest, or want to invest in Queensland. But they've come mm-hmm. with a set of criteria. And those criteria mm-hmm. are that there has to be a set of measurable, verifiable mm-hmm. indices for biodiversity. Otherwise, they mm-hmm. won't invest. Now, this is a pretty major investment group, and it's been fascinating to watch this come down the line. They, on their end, are saying, well, this is our criteria. They don't necessarily have people to invest with on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things are, you, you mentioned that now is the time. You know, this is the moment. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's a, we don't have all the answers. It's a bit of a collective effort. I have to say you took my breath away uh, when you said talking about the shared history etched into our landscapes, Fikra. Is that sort of the, the fundamental passion for you, uh, preserving that shared history as well as the landscape? Yeah, I have to say it is, it is part of that and, and nature. And I just, I just um, I love wildlife. I love being in these landscapes, looking at the stars, you know, thinking about who's walked here previously. And I think probably like many young children, when I was young, I used to dream about what the world was like when, you know, pre-industrial. What was this planet yeah. like? You know, it must have been just filled with sound and an adventure. <laughs> and it still mm-hmm. is in places, right? So it still is, but it's diminishing. And the personal drive for me is to see if we see if we can protect as much of that as possible for future generations. I think on that note, Fikra, we may leave it there. Fikra Carney of Forever Wild, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you, Rachel. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you liked today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. 
The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.